Can AI tools help bring humanity back into the doctor-patient relationship? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, April 21st. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we welcome Dr. Bob Walker. We'll talk about the digital revolution in medicine and what that means for med students, for researchers, for patients. We look at how volunteers can change lives in a community with an emphasis on advocating for children. We put on our blonde wigs and roller skates for a dolly disco. It is all to help keep kids find a pathway to reading. Plus, we will bring back our conversation with former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith. It's National Poetry Month. That is coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. News is first. $200 million meant to spur housing infrastructure development during the 2022 construction season has remained unspent. Well, yesterday, lawmakers learned that money might not be available for projects until September of this year. SDPB's Lee Strubinger is joining us from the SDPB Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. We're going to unpack what is taking so long. Haley, welcome back. Hey, Lori. Thanks for having me. The big question is why will this money be available in September and not sooner? Yeah, so it's currently caught up in what's known as the rulemaking process. Of course. What's that? <laughs> yeah, so for the legislature, it's an important function, really, in their ability to keep an eye on the executive branch. So the legislature passes a bill that directs the executive branch to do something. That executive branch is then tasked with drafting rules that are approved by their governing board. Those rules are then brought to the Legislative Rules Review Committee, which either approves or denies them. We talked a lot about this last year mm -hmm. uh, with a similar process that happened with the Appraiser Certification Program and their draft for rules for a, pl a, a pilot program to really train more appraisers at one time. The Rules Review Committee then kept sending those rules back multiple times for the uh, uh, certification program to redraft those rules for that program. And then it was uh, ultimately approved and, and uh, is currently going on. So help us understand why the housing infrastructure program is taking that much time to get out. Yeah. So in 2022, the state legislature passed a bill to put $200 million towards housing infrastructure. The, the move is designed to address the state's housing shortage by spurring infrastructure development in both urban and rural areas of the state. There was some tension between the Nome administration and the legislature about where to put that money. Nome wanted it in the governor's office of economic development, which is led by Steve Westra, who's the vice president of Sioux Falls developer Hague Companies. But the legislature wanted it in the South Dakota Housing Development Authority. And the legislature got their way. In 2022, it was signed into law. But South Dakota Housing didn't spend the money. They worried they really lacked the authority. And even later that year, the executive board that we're talking about passed a memo saying that South Dakota Housing can spend this money, but it still didn't happen. So fast forward to this year in the 2023 legislature, they fast-track a similar bill and place it on the governor's desk, and she signs it. It was the first bill to pass this session. But there's really one key difference between the two bills. This year's bill requires the South Dakota Housing Development Authority to draft rules for the program. That wasn't in last year's bill. 
And that's not something that South Dakota Housing normally has to do. And it's one that uh, one of its lawyers says they haven't done in the last 30 years. So why would that lead to this particular delay? So uh, part of that is kind of unclear. I mean, the process has been complicated by the abrupt departure of housing director Lorraine Pollock last month. It also comes out Uh, during this meeting yesterday that South Dakota Housing passed along the rules for this program over to the governor's office of economic development, which was the agency the legislature moved that $200 million away from. All right. They moved it away from that governor's office of economic development. Why are they involved then? So that's a similar question uh, that House Majority Leader Will Mortensen had during this executive board meeting on Thursday. I think one other reason that we're having this committee hearing today is that the legislature specifically considered several times whether they want to send this money to GOED or to the Housing Development Authority. And the legislature answered that question by saying they wanted the Housing Development Authority to ride herd on this project. And I've heard several times now that it seems to me the lead stakeholder that's getting input on these is is GOED that is correcting these or approving them or not. So the answer there that Mortensen got is Mm -hmm. that there is state law that says South Dakota housing must ultimately report to the governor's office, governor's office of economic development and reporting and rule drafting uh, are kind of two separate things. But some lawyers have taken that to also mean that South Dakota housing must ultimately submit any draft rules through GOED as well. So the attempt to bypass the governor's office of economic development ended up with housing really having to go through that agency anyways. And again, that's one of the main differences between the 2022 bill and the one that passed this year. So what comes next for this money? The interim director for South Dakota Housing says they want to get their draft rules for the housing infrastructure grant and loan program approved by the legislative rules review committee in July, and they typically meet once a month. And so where that's at now, GOED has signed off on the draft rules. Then South Dakota Housing will work with their legal counsel to get these rules into a final form. That has to be approved by the housing board, but the housing board needs a 72-hour window before they can have that meeting to approve those rules. Then GOED signs off on those rules, That opens up a 20-day notice of review for a public meeting. Then South Dakota Housing can present these rules in their form, final form, to the Rules Review Committee for approval. And once that's done, then the program can be up and running. And, you know, keep in mind, this is a bill that was signed on February 1st. There are some lawmakers who are concerned about what they perceive as kind of the lack of urgency by the executive branch to get these rules turned around and that money out the door. Some of that heartburn might be eased a little bit because also during that meeting, the uh, interim director of South Dakota Housing, Chaz Olson, says that any projects that began after the bill was signed in February um, could be eligible to apply for the money once the program is propped up. You mean once they're already building? They could go back and apply for the... Okay. All right. Well, this is so Mm -hmm. interesting to follow. Lee Sturbinger, thank you so much for the update. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Laurie. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Dr. Robert Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. 
He's the author of more than 300 articles and six books. That includes the best-selling The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. Well, Dr. Wachter was the keynote speaker at a recent Sanford medical education event, and he spoke with me by phone while he was in Sioux Falls. We talked about how AI could change the nature of clinical care. Take a listen. You were coming for a a keynote address and some presentations at a Sanford Health medical education event, which I find fascinating because the digital revolution in healthcare, AI, some of the tools that we're seeing come out like ChatGPT, it feels like this is a transformative moment for good and possibly for bad. How do you how do you feel about it? What is sort of your emotional response to this moment in healthcare? Yeah, I think it is one of those seminal moments where you can think back on it and say we went from one way of doing thing doing work to another way. Uh, I've been studying the digital transformation in medicine for a decade, and, and it's been slow and bumpy, uh, but it reminds me a little bit of a quote from Hemingway. Hemingway once was asked, in one of his books I think he wrote, how does a person go bankrupt? And the answer was uh, was gradually, then suddenly. Mm. Two ways, gradually, then suddenly. So this feels like this may be the suddenly moment where the tool has finally gotten to be good enough that it really will change the way we do our work. Are big healthcare uh, systems, universities, research institutes working closely with the companies? Yeah, I've done some work with Microsoft, which is right now kind of the main player. They partnered with the uh, the company OpenAI that developed ChatGPT and then ultimately now GPT-4. And I have to say I've been quite impressed with them. They have been quite attentive to working closely with physicians and with medical organizations. They've just announced a few partnerships with health systems and with Epic, which is the big electronic health record that that many systems, including Sanford, has. It's been interesting because I worked with Google and Microsoft in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, when both companies decided they were going to get into healthcare and build electronic health records. And both of them folded their efforts a couple of years later. I remember the CEO of Google come in meeting with the advisory board I was on and saying, you know, we're getting out of healthcare. This is too complicated for us. And so I said, wow, that's pretty complicated. Google is finding it too complicated. I think what, you know, now that these companies, whether it's Microsoft or OpenAI or or Google or Amazon are getting back into it, they're doing it with their eyes much wider open than, than they were 20 years ago. I think 20 years ago, they naively believe that if you build the technological tools, transforming medicine was really no harder than transforming retail or how you bought your books or how you got your entertainment or how how you held a cab. And I think the companies now have seen enough about healthcare that they understand that it is very different on, on all sorts of levels. The the privacy issues make data sharing harder. Fail fast. I you know I live in the Silicon Valley. Fail fast is one of the mantras. Uh, but yeah. fail fast is fine with a restaurant app, but not that good if you have a dead patient. Nope. So I think they are all going in recognizing they better be into the long haul. That just developing a snazzy tool is not enough. You have to understand the way doctors and patients and nurses work and integrate it into the workflow. And so it's this is not going to be a tomorrow thing. It's going to take several years. But to have a tool that can as dazzlingly as it as it does interpret information 
you know, read over a paper and give you a summary of the paper, listen, whatever, whatever the equivalent of listening is to a doctor-patient conversation, and turn that into the doctor's notes so the doctor doesn't have to sit there being a very unhappy data entry clerk, yeah. um, you know, figure out how to, to schedule things in the operating room. Those things are, you know, are now the capability is there. And I think the companies have a, are, are establishing better partnerships and having a much they, – they understand the time horizon much better than they did in the beginning. I'm one of those journalists and writers who diagrammed sentences in college two generations from now. I will not be around to tell people that their grammarly is incorrect and probably language will change a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in healthcare. That might be a very bad thing indeed. So what I'm wondering is when we get to what a med student needs to know, I don't need my doctor to be able to do all the computations in her brain, but I need to know that somebody still knows how to do those computations because if the, the, the data is bad, I'm going to have a bad outcome. Do you see what I'm getting at there? This course, big question yeah. about what students need to have memorized and what they can just look up either on their phone or, or through their use of AI tools. But I need to know that somebody still knows how to do this two, three generations from now. How can we make sure that we're building a system that works for us in that way? Yeah, I think it's an open question whether someone will need to know to do that two or three generations now in the same way that, you know, how much do we really need to know about the kinds of math that we all learned in the old, old days since we all have calculators in our pockets now. There are certain things that we will probably give over to the computers if the computers are 100% reliable in doing them. The question then is how do we, a couple of questions. One is how do we repurpose that time and energy? And in a hopeful world, you would say, I don't really want my doctor to be doing all that calculating. I want my doctor to be demonstrating his or her empathy, listening carefully to my problems, interpreting the data, uh, explaining things to me in a way that makes sense. The hope is that that happens. The you know the question is, will patients gravitate toward systems that probably will be less expensive where you may not even see a doctor a lot of the time where a lot of the answers will come from the technology? But I think the point you're making in terms of kind of the degradation of skills is a very important point because in healthcare, the AI is not going to be perfect anytime soon. Yeah. There's going to need to be a human partner to the AI, a human supervisor, uh, because it's, it's, it simply is not going to be right 100% of the time, and we see that already with the AI systems. And that creates a set of problems. One is how do you, the one you're articulating, which is how do you train people to be still able to do the task when the AI is wrong or failing them or not available? And the second is the driverless car problem, which is if you look at the Tesla training manual, it says, you know, even though when you put it in driverless mode, the, the driver needs to stay alert. Well, that sounds good, except if the car is going to make a turn into a concrete barrier, I don't know a driver in the universe who's going to be alert enough to catch that in a nanosecond. And there have been several high-profile crashes of airplanes where when you really distill down what happened is the technology failed and the pilot no longer was able to fly the plane because the only plane they knew how to fly was the technologically enabled plane. So I think you are articulating a really important problem for those of us in the training space, which is how do we get our young people to use the technology appropriately and but also have a healthy dose of respect for the possibility that it will fail and be able to 
you know, grab the steering wheel and do the right thing if the technology is not providing them the right answer? That's a tough question. I think we're going to have to all be working that one out in the next yeah. uh, over the next five or ten years. When digital records first came out, all of a sudden your doctor is on a computer. They're not looking you in the eye. Patients want the computers to help bring back the humanity in their relationship between doctors. And we want the data crunching to save our lives. And we want it to be cheaper. Yeah. We don't <laughs> Are yeah. we asking yeah. too much there or not? No, it's perfect. Yeah. It's exactly yeah. what we should be asking for. And, and believe me, you know, being on the doctor's side of it, that's what I want too. I mean, yeah. it, it, it has to be what is the system, and the system is the combination of people and technology that delivers the best health and the best health care and the best access and does it in the most equitable way and does it at a price that doesn't bankrupt individuals and governments and businesses. And it's very clear that technology has to have a major role in that. Um, it's just as clear to me, at least, but I may be rooting too much for the humans, <laughs> that that's going to involve partnerships between people and technologies. You know, the malpractice system will have a vote as well. There's going to need to be a human that ultimately takes responsibility for uh, for the decision. But, you know, what does this look like 20 years from now? I don't know. It's a really, I don't think any of us, very few of us could have predicted GPT-4 uh, two years ago. Uh, it is really a sea change in the ability of the computer to uh, to do what it does. And so, you know, yes, I see medicine as a highly human endeavor. The empathy is incredibly important. The eye contact is important. Listening and explaining is incredibly important. But I think we're going to have to be flexible to try to understand because there will be things that the computer can do that, that we can't even envision now. You can hear my full interview with Dr. Bob Wachter online at sdpb.org news. We talked about how AI may fuel medical breakthroughs in the future and how it transformed the fight against disinformation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, April is National Child Abuse Prevention and National Volunteer Month. Those two things might seem like they don't always go hand in hand, but the women in the studio with me now know how closely related they are. They're here to talk about the important work volunteers do in Sioux Falls and beyond to give kids the safe homes they deserve. With me in the Kirby Family Studio, Susie Reeks is Vice President of Community Development at the Helpline Center. Susie, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Also with us, Amy Carter, Operations Director for Children's Home Shelter for Family Safety. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much. And Stacy Teason, Executive Director at Sioux Falls Casa. Hi, Hi. Thanks for having us. This is a powerful room right here. <laughs> thanks. There's some, some leadership. We could talk about leadership. We could talk about compassion. We could talk about how you got into this work, how you support one another. But let's first talk about volunteers in this space, in the kind of work that we do. And um, Susie, let's start with you. Helpline Center, community development, how important is the volunteer core of people that lift up these kinds of services? Yeah, absolutely. I think 
a lot of nonprofits, uh, such as the other ladies in the room, would not be in existence if it wasn't for volunteers. And volunteers are so important to our community and to help our nonprofits continue to um, thrive and improve and help those in need. So uh, we're just so thankful there's a National Volunteer Week that we can talk about this more and get it out to other people and let people know, hey, if you want to volunteer, reach out to the Helpline Center and we'll get you connected to many different nonprofits in our community that need volunteers. What makes a good volunteer? What kind of... If they have a passion, we yeah. want you to have a passion for what you're doing and then get connected to an agency that you can use that passion. So you're you're feeling that great impact, but you're helping those in need too. Yeah. Amy, tell me a little bit about the work that you do at the Children's Home Shelter for Family Safety, which many people might have known as Children's Inn. Yes. Um, what What is the current mission of that facility new facilities uh, we expanded so we okay. do have a new building yep same services that we're offering so we are a domestic violence shelter and then also a group home for children who have been abused or neglected and have had to be removed from their home because of that abuse or neglect okay. so our facility has 96 beds where individuals who are fleeing abusive situations where they no longer feel safe either living in home or somewhere else in the community can come to us and they can stay within our safe shelter uh, so we serve adults, children, every gender, age, socioeconomic class, everything, a anyone who just really needs that safe place from abuse. What do volunteers come to you wanting to do and then help sort of reframe the enthusiasm to something that's actually helpful and useful and needed? Right. Great question, you know, because you're right. People come with a lot of passion and even some of their own history with either domestic violence or child abuse and looking to give back. And, and we do have to really sort of funnel that in, in the best way. And so we have volunteers that help um, in our just general facility, helping with sorting donations or working with um, at the front desk. Um, and we have volunteers who help with hanging out with the kids who are staying with us and playing games or helping them w at mealtime, putting them to bed with our staff, you know, things like that. And so um, really we have a lot of opportunities just kind of we really do individualize it while we have some set opportunities. We also just talk to those volunteers to see what would make the most sense for them and for us. What is it like to work with volunteers who maybe have their own experience with child abuse or neglect in their family or in their extended family? You know, it um, it can be incredibly rewarding and fulfilling for them and for us. It can also be a challenge. You know, sometimes the things come up that they maybe didn't expect would when they start getting in that field and working with individuals. But, uh, you know, we have a lot of wonderful staff and advocates and counselors on staff that we can work through that with them. And um, and sometimes people start with good intentions and a great fit, um, but then it turns that maybe it isn't, and then we'll look at other opportunities, maybe connecting them with the volunteer um, helpline, at, uh, and helpline center to look for other opportunities. But, um, but most people, it really it's really beneficial that they've had that experience because they can bring that empathy and compassion with them. Yeah. Stacy with Sioux Falls CASA, tell mm -hmm. people a little bit about what CASA mm -hmm. does and is. Yeah. CASA is court appointed special advocates. And so what we do then is recruit, train. It takes about 30 hours. And then we hook those volunteers up with kids who have experienced abuse or neglect. They get assigned to a specific case, just one, and then they're going to ride that case the whole way through being champions for those kids, ensuring that their needs are being met, and that what they want to have happen 
is what's going to go through at the court proceedings. It doesn't always go that way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes kids don't want to go back home. Most of the time they really do. They don't understand the bad stuff that's happened to them is not normal. And so they really just want to be back home with moms and dads. Our goal as a program is reunification. We want those kids back together with moms and dads, if at all possible. But the number of kids that come into care um, is much higher than the number of volunteers we're currently able to recruit. So we're always looking for new volunteers. In fact, you have an ambitious goal, right? This 2023, <laughs> tell me, just double down right now. Yes, what, that's exactly what, what, what we have to, we're yeah. trying to do. We annually recruit right around 25 to 30 volunteers, and we have over 150 kids waiting. So we thought, why not just go big? And we launched a 100 Capes campaign. We, we think our volunteers are superheroes. One of our biggest fundraisers is our Red Cape fundraiser that we just finished up last week. And so we just want our volunteers to recognize how much we support them, how much we need them. And then so we're just recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. And it isn't for everyone. We know that. But um, our kids are desperately in need of having someone be their champion, be that superhero for them. And so we're just out there trying every method to get in front of groups, people, businesses, to recruit at least 100 new volunteers. Yeah, I know several people who have just been so inspired by CASA's work, and they always say, I'm just not sure I could do it. So who can do it? Like, what's the time commitment? Mm -hmm. What's the knowledge? And that's always, they're a little bit afraid that they will some, that they will do something that will fail this, yeah. the, the child in the court system. I, I'm not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't understand this. And um, that's the fun thing about it is yeah. you don't have to be a lawyer. They have their own assigned attorney as well who's out there trying to do what's best for them. But this person is someone who really gets to know the family. You're mm. wanting to know how mom's doing, how dad's doing, if there really is a possibility of getting them back together. And then you're just really getting to build a relationship with that child. So it doesn't take special skills. It just takes compassion and that willingness to kind of be there. And it's a big commitment. We say it takes about 10 to 12 hours a month. And then um, roughly 18 months to two years because our cases take that long to go through. We recognize that the majority of our families are battling meth. Um, substance abuse issues are, are significant for our families. And so for them to struggle, get into recovery, maybe relapse. And we don't want them to relapse. And we obviously want them to come home to a safe, stable environment. So we need to make sure that mom's clean, dad's clean, and that they're really ready and able. So they might do parenting classes with children's in and the new name, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know that, and getting connected that way. So we work with the the helpline center to have information available for volunteers there. We're always working with our friends at I'm sorry, Children's Inn, and uh, so Children's but, Home Shelter. Children, yes, for family so safety. So hard for me. I used to work there, and then I've just known them for forever. They're just such good people, and so yeah. we're grateful to be able to utilize them. And they sometimes have our kids, and so and the moms yeah. too, if they're fleeing domestic violence. And so together we're very collaborative. So it's just wonderful to be here. So I was at an event not too long ago in a, with a group of people unrelated to the work that you're doing, but similar in the sense that we got in the elevator after the event, which was a dinner and a silent auction. And I happened to be in the elevator with many of the, the leaders of these organizations. And they were so lit up with meaning and purpose for the work that they were doing, that they weren't talking about what they watched on TV last night, or it wasn't like, God, I got, you know, I got to stop and get milk on the way home. It was, I think we made progress. I think this is really going to be a breakthrough. I, I met this person. Talk a little bit, Amy, about meaning and purpose in your work and then in, in volunteerism as well. You know, so many of the people that we come in contact with are at their most vulnerable point in their life. They're 
you know, think about how hard it is to ask for help. And the yeah. individuals that we see, that's what they're doing. They have come to us broken. They have come to us um, with little to nothing and, and, and very little hope also. And so our work, whether you're a volunteer or a staff, allows you to be a small part in their life during that really difficult time. And the gratitude that people show um, is you know, just fills your heart and fills your cup every day. Um, seeing the kids who were scared and didn't know what their day was going to look like at home, and now they have a safe place to stay. They know they're going to have a meal. They know they get to sleep because nobody's going to be disrupting that sleep, and they get to go to school. And um, it's just all of that. All of those things come together, and piece by piece, it's small. Oftentimes, progress is small in in our world, and I think in your cases in CASA, um, but that's what I think gives us purpose and meaning is being able to be a be a part of that process. Susie, you mentioned the name change and just how hard it can be, you know, to shift from one thinking if you grew up in a community to the, to the new way of thinking. Two one one nine eight eight. I mean, your organization is changing as well. This is really indicative of a community that's changing and what the future will be. Tell us a little bit about how your organization is sort of shifting to rethink. The, uh, the, the national picture, the local picture, yeah. growing population. Yeah, so I think it's, we just had this conversation as staff that, you know, people call us different things. Are we the two-on-one helpline? Are we um, help? Are we just the helpline? Are we the helpline center? Uh, we're the helpline center, um, but we have different programs. So yeah. uh, we've just really expanded to be able to provide 211-988, our volunteer connections program, and are really there to help connect people to other nonprofits, um, provide them hope, provide them referrals to be able to continue that long-term recovery as they need it. Yeah, that 988, that new number, This is you're like the information hub. Yes. For, which can almost be intimidating, but just pick up the phone and somebody will walk you through that. Absolutely. So if you can't remember what the children's inn is called anymore, call nine one call nine eight eight and say, "Hey, I want to help in this in this space." Yep. If you're in a crisis, call nine eight eight. If you need information, call two one one. Okay, perfect. Uh, Stacy, tell us a little bit about um, the difference because you mentioned Sioux Falls Casa. This is a commitment. Mm-hmm. And this is a commitment of your heart. Absolutely. As well as your time. And you're going to be in a space where you feel challenged, mm-hmm. but also valued. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have good days and bad days. We'll talk about the kids and the difference that it makes, though, to have that CASA volunteer walking with them step by step. Yeah, that's an amazing one. We have just the other day, one of the school counselors called from our local elementaries and asked the volunteer advocate if she would be available to come to the school concert because he knew that the dad and the mom were not going to be able to be there. And with the behavior, the behaviors he's been having at school, they thought if he saw a familiar face in the crowd, that that would really change how his day would go. And she made it. She went there. He saw her. It was all the feels right there. <laughs> but so that's one of the great moments. And I think it's it's hard because you don't know how the case is going to go. But as long as you're showing up for that child, and it could be a couple of kids, it depends on what you have the time commitment available for. But just showing up and being there every week, we say twice a month, but so many of our volunteers are just so invested that they're going every week to see those kiddos and getting to know everything about them. And then that's just life-changing. They might just be playing Uno, but that child is building a relationship with a healthy, strong adult who then might stay with them forever. When our cases close, our volunteers are done with that case, but there's plenty of opportunity for them to continue working with those kids. They just wouldn't be their volunteer 
advocate anymore. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of our volunteers that have been around a long time and they're still seeing their kids who are now adults, um, but still that support person for them. Wherever you're listening from, this is what we do. This is community. And sometimes when we talk about what skills you need, showing up for kids can be the number one skill. Showing up for somebody in crisis, that's it. And we do that every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're going to wrap up there before I start crying and getting all weepy. (laughs) Stacey Teason, Executive Director at Sioux Falls Casa, Amy Carter, Operations Director for Children's Home Shelter for Family Safety and Bright Start, and Susie Reeks is the Vice President of Community Development at the Helpline Center. What a great panel. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, tomorrow, roller skating Dolly Partons will take over the Vermilion National Guard Armory. Why? To help get free books into the hands of early learners, of course. Kelsey Collier-Wise is the Executive Director of United Way of Vermilion, and she is with me from SDPB's Vermilion Studios on the campus of the University of South Dakota to talk about the 6th Annual Dolly Disco. Kelsey, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lori. Now, um, you're a Dolly fan, first of all, but you're also a fan of books and reading. Tell us a little bit about the Imagination Library first. So Imagination Library, uh, is it's a nationwide um, organization that was started by Dolly Parton. Um, anybody who knows anything about Dolly knows that she's got an amazing heart for philanthropy um, and for kids. And she was inspired by her own father, who was illiterate, um, to start this uh, program in Pigeon Forge, where she's from, and it just grew across the country. Um, United Ways sort of took up the banner in a lot of communities, and we're uh, one of those uh, here in South Dakota. And so it's a, an amazing program where kids zero to five can get a free book in the mail with their name on it every single month. It's, it's pretty incredible. And that is exciting. That book coming in the mail with their name on it, that's a big deal. I oh, mean, yeah. It's just like a thing. Maybe not when they're two months. But <laughs> right, but you start being yeah. able to recognize your own name yep. and you see it and you get excited about it. And, um, you know, it's a program that's open to anyone. It's not an income qualified uh, program. Um, but we know that there are a lot of kids that don't necessarily have those books that are just theirs in their home. And so you can imagine what a difference that can make. Yeah. Tell me about the disco, the Dolly disco. How is this going to unfold? So uh, a few years ago, I had a friend who was also just a Dolly Parton fan up in Duluth. And she told me that she and her friends would get together at Dolly's birthday, January 19th every (laughs) year. Um, They'd dress up like Dolly and take over the local roller skating rink. And I thought, oh my gosh, this would be perfect to raise money for Imagination Library. And so we brought it to Vermilion in 2015. Um, and it was uh, myself and a friend of mine, Becky Inquistroder, another big Dolly fan. And we said, we'll have music, we'll have roller skates, and we'll have wigs. And we'll see if anybody shows up. And it turned out that the community really loved it, um, especially in January when there's not a lot to do. Uh, but if, unfortunately, the other thing about that is this year's Dolly uh, disco did not happen <laughs> on Dolly's birthday because of the weather. So right. this is our... <laughs> And and it's snowing now, too, so I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Yes, Dolly, she'll overcome, and so shall we. Tell me a little bit about what you want people to come and do and and the fundraising aspect of this, where the money goes. Let's talk about that. 
Absolutely. So um, the the party starts at 6 p.m. tomorrow at the National Guard Armory in Vermilion. goes till 8. Um, it's $5 per person or $15 per family uh, suggested donation. So if you've got a larger family, we wanted to make sure that everybody can come. Um, skates are provided. That's a great thing that our Vermilion Parks and Rec does is they do provide the skates at the armory. Um, so just, you know, bring yourself, uh, bring your, your dolly wear if you want, um, and uh, safety equipment. And uh, we'll have some snacks, we'll have Dolly's music, disco lights, and, and just have a great time. Then that money that we raise um, just goes towards paying for those books. Uh, United Way of Vermilion is the full funder of Imagination Library uh, in Clay County. Um, and it's, it's a pretty um, large program because we've got about 260 kids enrolled in it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that funding will help make sure that we can continue. What difference does it make to those 260 kids when they end up in the classroom later to just have grown up reading? So speak broadly about literature and early literacy and, and the impact that it has. Well, we know that being exposed to books at an early age makes a difference. And specifically, there have been studies on Imagination Library and kids that are enrolled in that program are more kindergarten ready when they get to the school. The other cool thing about it is, again, because it's available to everyone, um, whether you are a low-income kid, like a lot of uh, kids in Vermilion are, we've got a poverty rate of about 25%, or you know, you come from a, a more comfortable home. When those kids get into the classroom, they have these books in common. You know, yeah. if they're the same age, they've gotten the same books every month, and they've got uh, a common language that they can talk about and that their teachers can talk about, which is also a really neat way to be able to connect o around reading and around literature. Yeah, that's cool to know that they've read the same books. <laughs> yeah. That's a big deal when you think about it. It is, and the last book they get before when they turn five yeah. um, is a book specifically about getting ready for kindergarten. And mm -hmm. I've talked to so many parents, and I, I had this experience myself, where you read this book with your kids, about going to kindergarten yeah. um, and it's it, it just makes you cry <laughs> yes I think is it lookout kindergarten yes yes I, I, with, we the got mice. Too, with the mouse yeah <laughs> do you have a favorite children's book Kelsey Collier wise oh my goodness I have so many children throw books one that, out throw uh, one out that you Eloise love. Eloise, Eloise yeah. is my very favorite children's book I would say because she's uh She's kind of a rascal, and I always admired <laughs> that about her. I'm going to go with Kitten's First Full Moon by Kevin Henkes, because in his Caldecott speech, he said that he got a letter from a child's parent, and the child licked the hole in the page where the kitten's bowl of milk was. <laughs> and that was how significant that book was <laughs> to that child. Kelsey Collier-Wise, thank you so much for being here with us today. Enjoy the Dolly Disco. We'll put all the information up on our website. Thanks for your Thank time. Thank you so much, Lori. Tracy K. Smith served as the 22nd Poet Laureate of the U United States. That was from 2017 to 2019. She was in South Dakota for two autumnal October days in 2018, and I had the just delight of talking with her ahead of her event. So in honor of National Poetry Month, we're bringing you a snippet of that conversation we shared. Take a listen and be on the lookout for more poetry readings and conversations all next week. Plain language, accessible language in poetry, what's its role? 
Well, I think poems are really interesting because there are poems that use, you know, familiar language and they speak to us. We're um, not as conscious of the voice and all of its characteristics. We're listening to words and the feelings that those words get to. But what's also really interesting to me is we can be spoken to very powerfully by poems that use language in a way that's different from how we speak. Um, in the poems that I've chosen to share with people on these trips, I, I try and bring in a range of, of poetic voices so that we can experience what it feels like to hear a poem that uses a language that's almost invisible. And then what does it feel like to, use a, to, to listen to a poem that is using language in audible musical ways or even using repetition to drive certain ideas and sounds um, into a, a different part of our ear or our mind. Um, I love how versatile poems are, and I have this strong belief that readers are more versatile than we sometimes give them credit for. Mm -hmm. And it, that reminds me of uh, one of your very well-known poems that is almost entirely curated. So the, the language um, being language that you found, and it's somebody else's language, it's Civil War soldiers' language. Tell me a little bit about that process of, of the poem, I will tell you the truth about this, I will tell you all about it. Um, so people kind of understand where that came from and, and how you put that together as a poet. Sure. Um, that poem was, um, I think of it as kind of a gift because I was invited by the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. to contribute a poem along with many other poets to an exhibition of Civil War photographs. And I had to figure out what my approach to the material would be I didn't feel that I had a strong sense of connection to the Civil War, and I didn't know that I had questions about the Civil War. Um, but in order to, you know, kind of get started, I said, I wonder what black soldiers felt during this conflict. I wonder what I could learn about what their specific experience was. I found um, two really great books, one of which included letters from soldiers and their family members to Abraham Lincoln, and also correspondence back and forth uh, across families. And then another that included transcriptions of deposition statements that veterans and their widows and descendants had given after the war in an attempt to claim pensions. Initially, I thought I would just read these books and then build a poem out of my own knowledge of you know this, this chapter of history and my own imagination. But as I was reading through these accounts, the voices were so compelling. They felt so vivid. They didn't feel 150 years old. And I heard the urgent appeals that people were making uh, to have their needs met. And sometimes it meant they resorted to really beautiful and emphatic, even poetic language. It seemed crazy <laughs> to me to, to rewrite that. And so what I chose to do was simply to gather these voices, as many of them as I could together, and invite readers to listen along with me. When you say that, um, I didn't know I had questions. Uh, that made me think of a poem that's in this anthology, American Journal, 50 Poems for Our Time. And uh, it's by Lady Long Soldier, who is Oglala Lakota. So we uh, know and love her here in South mm -hmm. Dakota. And it's a poem about the Dakota 38, uh, a story that I had heard before. But as I'm reading her poem, I thought the exact same thing. I didn't know I had questions about this. Do you know that poem uh, well? Do you remember its placement in the book? And Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that poem is so 
powerful and beautiful and you know transparent in a way. Um, it it commands its own section in the anthology, not only because of its length, but because I think it it invites us into a different engagement with language and history and reality um, that seems like we could just dwell there for a little while and pause before moving on to the next voice. Yeah, it literally commands its own uh, section. Mm -hmm. Is that a decision you made? Is that a decision uh, you made with others? It felt... Uh, and it felt natural to me to yeah. s- to want to give that poem that kind of space, and I was happy that that um, other people agreed that was a good placement for it. Poetry can change how we see the world. Can it change how we behave in the world? Have you seen that? Well, I think about what poetry does for me as a person, not just as a writer, but when I read poems, and they teach me to look at small things more closely. They teach me to listen to the quiet thing with more... Um, interest. Um, poems kind of urge me to to wonder more. And I think that it's hard to do that and not behave differently as a result. You know, it's hard to still feel the distance between me and another person as large and uncrossable if poems tell me that there's a way to get across that distance. I'm wondering if uh, you can read something for us today. Is that something you're uh, prepared to and willing to do for? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Do you want to hear something from the anthology or something? I want to hear whatever you would like the listeners <laughs> of South Dakota Public Broadcasting uh, to hear. Okay. Oh, this is a poem that um, is by the poet Ross Gay, who lives in Indiana. He's a poet who has a really deep love of nature and the natural world. And um, we were just talking about crossing or bridging divides or distances, seeming distances. This is a poem that I think enacts that so beautifully. It's called Becoming a Horse. It was dragging my hands along its belly, loosing the bit and wiping the spit from its mouth made me a snatch of grass in the thing's maw, a fly tasting its ear. It was Touching my nose to his made me know the clover's bloom. My wet eye to his made me know the long field's secrets. But it was putting my heart to the horses that made me know the sorrow of horses, the sorrow of a brook creasing a field, the maggot turning in its corpse, made me forsake my thumbs for the sheen of unshod hooves, and in this way, drop my torches, and in this way, drop my knives. Feel the small song in my chest swell, and my coat glisten and twitch, and my face grow long, and these words cast off at last for the slow, honest tongue of horses. That is the former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith. We talked with her when she was in South Dakota a few years back. Uh, So grateful to have that conversation. We're going to do that all next week. We're going to bring you and bring to the surface some conversations that we have had with really outstanding poets and uh, bring you some new ones as well. So that is our show for today.
and we hope that it served you. On the next In the Moment, we'll explore the knowledge gap in education with the author of a new book. Black Hill State University is addressing the shortage of STEM teachers in rural areas with a new grant and a plan. We'll talk about that. Plus, like I said, we'll have those poetry conversations all next week. Our In the Moment producers are Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman. Our executive producer is Kara Hetland, SDPB's news director, Josh Chilson. We received all kinds of support this week. We'll say thank you to Colton Nicholson, Brian Wood, Mike Barda, Larry Rohr, Jordan Henderson, Crystal Schoenbar, Lee Sturbinger, and Crystal Mija. I am your host, Lori Walsh. Happy Friday. Thank you for listening. <laughs>